Thank you, Julie. Praise fam. If you have your copy of God's Word, I'd like to encourage you to please open it to Psalm 86. In preparation for sharing the Lord's Supper together, we're going to focus on the first seven verses of this psalm. Jody and I would like to ask you to pray for something specifically regarding Emma, in regards to Emma. Uh, we're still battling some lung issues, so we would ask you to pray specifically that the Lord would clear up the infection that is lingering around. So uh, pray for that. As you pray for her healing, continue to pray just for clear breathing and her lungs to be clear. We would greatly appreciate that. Psalm 86, verses 1 through 7. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. Pray with me, please. Father, hear our prayers this morning. We ask you, O Lord, to direct our attention, our focus towards you. I pray, Father, that you would give us a glimpse of that which is eternal. And that we would fall in love with those things. Rather than the temporary things of this world. Forgive us, Father, where we have bought into the lies that this world is what will satisfy us. Bring us back to the truth that it is in Jesus alone that we will find that for which we hunger. Grant this, Father, we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our Mediator. In His name, amen. This morning as a church family, we gather around the Lord's table to share communion. Isn't it interesting how many family reunions do center around food? Think about it. How often does your extended family get together and there's no meal involved? we got to eat. So whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas, there's overabundance of food. Or whether it's just getting together and it's a, a barbecue or a cookout. There's got to be something to eat. Some of my favorite memories come from whenever mother would prepare Christmas dinner. She looked forward to that when her kids and her grandkids would gather at her house and she would put on this huge spread of food 
And I can remember I would always call her before we left. It's a two and a half hour drive from here to my hometown of Athens. And I would say, Mom, we're getting ready to leave. Just wanted to let you know we'll be there shortly. And she'd say, oh, we're looking forward to seeing you. And then she would say these words, come hungry. Isn't that a great thing to say? Come hungry. There was a promise in that. Come hungry and you'll be filled. Come hungry, you won't be disappointed. Come hungry and you'll leave satisfied. This morning as we come to the Lord's table, I hope you've come hungry. Not for the things of this world, but for something that will last into eternity. Because this morning as we share communion, we are doing so as our Lord instructed us. We're doing so remembering His death that has purchased for us eternal life. We do so remembering His resurrection, which contains the promise that one day we will be with Him in the kingdom, in the new heaven and the new earth, enjoying His presence forever. Now I recognize that in coming to church we come for many reasons. For some it could be habit. Come to church because that's what you do. For others, you come with a, a true sense of wanting to do something, and that's noble. And as I've been preaching this month, that honors God when we come with a willingness to serve. Or you could come because of friendships. But I remind you, we must come above all else hungry. We shouldn't just come as servants seeking to serve. We should also come as beggars, desiring to be filled. Coming with such an attitude does not dishonor God. Rather, it glorifies Him. Because as we come with those with hands open and open saying, Lord, here I am, fill me. It glorifies His name because we are openly confessing that God and God alone can meet our deepest needs. And that honors Him. Because if we come otherwise, we're coming under false pretenses. Because the reality is, every one of us in here are hungry, needy, and poor. That's where David begins this prayer. David calls out to the Lord, incline your ear, O Lord, answer me. And he gives this reason why God must answer him. For I'm poor and needy. Now Psalm 86 is a prayer of David. It's a prayer where he is seeking deliverance from his enemies. It's a prayer where he is acknowledging that he cannot save himself. He needs God to intervene to bring salvation. Now remember, as David is praying for God's deliverance, it's not that David doesn't know how to fight. Whether it's as a young man, David shows the courage and faith of rushing into battle. Or as an older man, David knows what it is to go into combat. So there's something different here. We don't know David's age when he writes this. David could be an older man who is just tired and weary of all the battles of life. And he is very, very exhausted about the demands that he has faced time and time again. Battles on the left, battles on the right. 
problems in front of him, difficulties behind him, and he's just weary. Or it could be that David is a young man. It could be that David is writing this and he's on the run from Saul. And in that case, David is literally poor and needy. Has no other hope of deliverance other than calling out to God that God might destroy his enemies. But the fact is, whether he is old or young, he is calling out for help. And whether we are young or old, that's where we must be. It's an apt description of every one of us, isn't it? Poor and needy. No matter where we are, we must come to the reality that there is very little that we control in life. Things will happen you and I have no control over. Things that would overwhelm us. Things that that burden us and weigh us down. And we wonder, Lord, is there any deliverance? But the reality is we don't like to admit that. We like to have the veneer of control. We like to put on the mask that we have everything in line and our lives are perfectly in order. And that's what makes us exactly like the church at Laodicea. For those who are familiar with that church in Revelation chapter 3, it's mainly known as the church that made Jesus vomit. But rarely do we think about why. Yeah, we say it's because they are lukewarm, but I want you to look at what lies behind their lukewarmness. It's because they refuse to deal with the reality of their need for Jesus. Look at Revelation 3.17. To this church, Jesus says, For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He's saying you put on this front that you don't need anything or anyone. You've got it all together when the reality is far from that. And in the same manner, we cover up our neediness. We like to ignore that it's not there. So we live in fear of when the truth will come out. When I was a student at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Jody and I were recently married. God granted and allowed me to pastor a church in the small community of Blum, Texas, an hour south of Fort Worth. They had a parsonage, so the Lord provided a place for us to live, but we still didn't have very much. In fact, one of the things we did to save money is that Jody would cut my hair. We purchased a set of clippers, and about once a month, I'd get out the metal folding chair, spread the newspapers on the floor, and she would give me a haircut. The first time was quite an adventure. I have to tell you, I was a little bit nervous about this, but you do what you got to do. So I sat down, and Jody went at it with confidence. If you know Jody, you know one thing about her, and I kid her about this. I say, you may be wrong, but you're never in doubt. So she goes at it with confidence. She's going at it, and all of a sudden I hear this. And then she starts to laugh. If there's something that will make you nervous, it's when your barber starts to laugh. What have you done? It'll be fine. It'll be fine, she says. What have you done? So I get the mirror and find out she has gapped me. I've got a huge hole where my hair used to be like midway up, like right in there. What am I going to do? She said, I've got a plan. Next day I found out her plan. While I'm driving to school, she gets out her mascara and colors in my hair where that spot is 
I say, well, that's great, but what am I supposed to do if I get nervous and start sweating and my mascara runs? What happens? What happens if the hole is found out? Is that not a fear we live with? What if in a moment somebody finds out I really don't have things together? What happens if in a moment people find out that I'm really weak? What if they find out that I don't have all the answers? And I want to tell you that could be the best thing that could ever happen to you. To in a moment have all the pretense, pretense stripped away. And to be able to say, Lord, I'm poor and I'm needy. I can't do anything, Lord. I need you. Then I think we're ready for God to work. Because then we're coming with our arms open saying, Lord, be gracious to me. Because when David comes and he prays in verse 1, incline your ear, answer me. There's this, this idea there that he feels distant from God. He's poor and he's needy. And he's saying, Lord, it's like you don't hear me anymore. God, where are you? And that's why he calls for God's grace. Verse 3, be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day? It's a plea for compassion. God, I feel distant from you. I'm weak. I'm needy. I cannot handle the things that are happening in life. So God, be gracious and compassionate to me. Do you understand that's one of the things that sets our God apart from all the false gods of this world? Our God is compassionate. In the time in which David is writing this, the false gods around him were vindictive, angry. Wrathful. But the God of the Scripture is one that is gracious and compassionate. That's why He is praised for His steadfast love and His mercy. And that's why in Isaiah He says, My ways are not your ways because I am gracious and compassionate. That's why I take great comfort in the words that are on Jesus' lips in Matthew chapter 9 when it says that He looks out on the crowds and He's moved with compassion. Why? Because he says we are like sheep without a shepherd. And he has compassion upon us. But here's the part that troubles me. When you look at verse 2 and David says preserve my life. In other words, save me. He says for I'm godly. I have mixed emotions in reading that. Because I recognize at the best of times David could say that. But at the worst of the times he couldn't. And then I'm asked if I were saying this prayer. Could I say Lord be gracious to me for I am godly. And I don't know that I always can. Because I'm prone all too often, like Paul wrote in Romans 7, where the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. The things that I should do, I end up not doing. And then I cry out, who can save me from this? And then I'm reminded of what Paul said, but praise be to God, the victory is ours through Jesus Christ. So I'm brought back to the truth of God's grace and compassion and that the only reason I can say, the only way I can say is that for I am godly is because I am clothed with the righteousness, the godliness of Jesus Christ by faith. So I take courage that I can say this because of Jesus and he is rich in mercy. I was reminded of that this past week. 
the class I teach at Providence, we were exploring the Gospels a little bit, talking about how they are, are unique and they are not legend because of the level of detail they give. And I looked at an example of that with the class. In the Gospel of John in chapter 21, the disciples are out in a boat. They look up on the shore and they see Jesus. Now Peter can't wait. He dives into the water, swims to the shore, and when he gets there, Jesus is cooking breakfast. There's a fire built, and he's cooking fish. But then it adds this detail. It was a charcoal fire. Well, why is that detail there? Wouldn't it be enough to say there was an open fire and Jesus is cooking fish? But no, it's very specific. A charcoal fire. And it's in the context of Peter. There's only one other time that a charcoal fire is mentioned in the Bible. And it's earlier in John. When Peter is waiting outside of the place where Jesus is being tried. And he's standing next to a fire. A charcoal fire. And this time a servant girl comes to him. And as Peter is warming himself next to the charcoal fire, waiting to hear what's happening inside, this young servant girl looks at him and says, Aren't you one of those disciples? No, Peter says, not me. And he does that three times, denies Jesus, while standing next to a charcoal fire. You do know that one of our most powerful senses is the sense of smell. You know that smell of charcoal burning. And now here Peter is again. Next to a charcoal fire. Face to face with Jesus. What does Jesus say? What would you and I say? Peter, you had your chance. Okay, you had your chance. You saw the miracles. You said you believed, but when push came to shove, you denied me. Turn in your disciple card right now. I'm done with you. How many of us? But here is Jesus who looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. Feed my sheep. Peter, do, do you really love me more than these? Yes, Lord, I do. Then tend my lambs. Peter, do you really love me? Yes, Lord, I do. Then feed my sheep. In that moment, rather than finding judgment and condemnation, Peter finds the grace of God that not only restores, but sends him on his way. Such is the grace of God that gives us exactly what we need. Mercy when we de deserve judgment. Grace when we deserve to be condemned. So this morning as we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we come needy for God's grace, knowing and being reminded that He has given it abundantly in Jesus Christ. And we can rejoice in that. And not only that he has given it, but that he is faithful. Notice what David prays next. He says in verse 2, Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. David now argues and prays before the Lord based on a servant-master relationship. See, there was a bit of a quid pro quo in a servant-master relationship. The servant does everything the master asks. That's his responsibility. 
But the responsibility of the master is to provide protection, shelter, and the basic needs of the servant. So that's why David says, save your servant. I trust in you. You are my God. David is reminding God, be faithful to the relationship we have. And the good news, church, is that God is faithful. Something I come back to time and time again is a hymn that is recorded in the New Testament. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2, verse 13, part of this hymn says this, If we are faithless, He, that is God, remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Even when you and I struggle and stumble, God is faithful. He does not deny Himself. Take comfort in that. God doesn't let go. He holds on firmly. He is faithful. When you are struggling and stressed, remember God is faithful. When you are worried and anxious, remember that God is faithful. When you are in doubt and feel weak, remember that God is faithful. Faithful, he will never deny himself and never deny his word. Because of that, David has confidence. He doesn't just pray for deliverance. Look at verse 4. Gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. He is saying, I'm opening up my life to you, O Lord. Fill it with joy. It's as if David is holding this empty cup and he's saying, Lord, fill it. Fill me with joy. You see, we should come to the table needy saying, Lord, fill me with joy. Fill me with grace. Let your mercy come over me. And strip away the pretense. I wanted to preach this, this message in accordance with communion. Because I wanted us to see that our neediness is met by Jesus. Think about all the things that Jesus could have used to symbolize his death. He could have said, hold up a cross. Put it in your church. We've done that, but there's no biblical command to do that. He could have said, go out and look at the sunrise and be reminded that the sun rose out of the grave. We worship on Sundays to remind ourselves that Jesus has been resurrected, but there's really no command. But there is a command. To partake of the bread and drink of the cup. That's commanded. Bread is one of the most basic staples of human life and diet. Basic, but will provide what you need. Basic because it's accessible to all. Basic because it meets us at our base level of need and it's broken broken to remind us of the broken body of Jesus and that by his stripes we are healed and that our need can be met wine and although we use grape juice wine in the scriptures is a symbol of joy David prays for gladness. This is a reminder that our joy will be made complete when we are with him in the kingdom. There's a day coming when wrongs will be righted and the things of this earth will be stripped away. So today, we not only celebrate communion looking back at what he's done, but we look forward to his return. And so we come needy and hungry saying, Lord, fill me.
we're going to take a few moments to prepare for the sharing of communion. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me. In just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing a verse. I want to remind you that we come needy confessing our dependency upon the Lord Jesus. In the book of 1 Corinthians, there is warning about taking communion in an unworthy way. That can mean we shouldn't take communion if there is known unrepentant sin in our lives. So we should take a moment to repent. But it also means coming without thinking about our need for Jesus. It means that we come without any thought of His grace or mercy. Any thought of His death and resurrection. We are warned not to do that. So this morning I invite you to come needy. To recognize our poverty before Jesus. To claim the blessing where it says, Blessed are the poor, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are the hungry and the thirsty, for they shall be filled. Heavenly Father, I thank you that our deepest longings are met in Jesus Christ. There we find grace for our need. We find salvation. We find hope. We find joy. We find meaning. And Lord, I give you the glory for all of these things. Help us, Father. Help us. Help us to lay aside the mask that we put on. To recognize that we all need a Savior. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.